0: BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts.
1: 1212, 1212. Hello, I'm Louis Theroux, and welcome to my podcast series for BBC Radio 4, Grounded with Louis Theroux. Can you hear me all right? Like you, I'm in lockdown, and so I've been filling the time by reaching out remotely via the web to people I'm interested in and who, like me, may be looking for connection in these strange times. Let's do a little sound check. Is everything looking good? I've been relying on guests to record their half of the chat, which doesn't always work. I've stopped it's... it. Wait a minute. Oh, no.
0: It's fine. up where I can start it again.
1: And we can all see each other via video conferencing software. Are you going behind the curtain? They've disappeared. Production elves. They're gone My guest today is internationally renowned singer, DJ and musical icon boy, George, a man who's no stranger to controversy and wholly unafraid of speaking his mind. I was fairly confident of getting a good conversation. Hi, George. How are you?
0: Good, yeah. I mean, obviously, my mum's in hospital, so it's a worrying time, but the news today is a bit better. She doesn't have corona, I don't think, but she has underlying issues and she's being looked after. I got a bit desperate yesterday because I was in a panic and... Just thought, oh, my God, my mum, you know, it, it's a tough time. I know everyone's going through it, but, you know, your mum's your mum, isn't it? You know? <laughs> like, I saw you'd posted about it on social media, and you're close with your mum, aren't you? I'm close to all of my family. I mean, you know, my mum is, <laughs> I'd say, the most important person in the world to me right now. Always been really close to my mother. So, yeah, it's tough. It's
1: really tough. How are you coping with the whole corona situation in general?
0: Well, I'm isolating. I've been isolating since I landed in England about three weeks ago. I'm not at my home because my home is being refurbished, so I had to rent somewhere. So I'm in a sort of rented apartment right in the centre of London, but there's no noise. There's, like, the most insane silence. I mean, I'm in basically in Soho. No-one bothers you. No-one's asking for selfies. Nobody's, you know, people see you and they smile, but they keep their distance, and that's all you can do until we know what's really going on. Did you have to cancel something? Were you in the was, middle of something? Yeah, I was in the middle of doing The Voice in Australia. I've been doing it for the last four years. I won it last year, so it was a really big show for me, and we were kind of halfway through it, We had a break for two months, so I had the choice of whether I stayed in Australia and stayed there the whole year, probably, or I came back to London. You are one of the judges on that? Coaches. Coaches,
1: (laughs) is that the term? Is that the preferred term?
0: There's no judging on this show. So I had a choice to stay in Australia and be so far away from everyone I love. Not that I don't love people in Australia, I do, but I'm just saying I needed to come home, even though I knew I couldn't see anyone. I thought in my head I'm near them and... Now I know why I came back, so it's important.
1: So you're sort of on your own, you're not locked in with anyone. No, I'm not locked in with anyone.
0: I, mean, I wouldn't wish me upon anyone in a situation like this. I mean, I live alone anyway, so I'm quite used to my own company. I like my own company. Obviously, it's different when you have removed the element of choice. I love to visit people. I love them to visit me. I also like it when they leave. As I've got older, I've learned to be with myself. I mean, this has been probably one of the big significant changes in my life is that I am able to be on my own and being on your
1: own doesn't mean you're lonely. It just means you're on your own and you're making a choice. What I wanted to say, first of all, is thank you for joining me in this conversation. I hope I hardly have to say that I'm a big fan and that growing up, you were very important. You know, I'm sort of the perfect age, really, to have grown up with Culture Club and the New Romantic Movement. I still vividly remember 1982 when Culture Club were on Top of the Pops. I was living in South London and I was with a friend called Dana and Dana said, that lead singer's a man. (laughs) And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous, Dana. And I made fun of him. I said, the nonsense you come out with. And then a few days later, had it confirmed and just being really surprised. And then went on that journey with you and obviously broke America and people like you and Annie Lennox and Adamant were like superheroes. Especially in our own heads. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. It was a great cultural moment. Anyway, for me personally, I don't want to sort of fangirl too much. And then much later, I think I approached you to do When Louis Met, the TV series I did. You probably very sensibly, I think, politely turned us down. I don't know if you remember that. I
0: think I can handle you at this stage. I think at that point I was kind of inflicted with honesty. And I just used to say whatever came out of my mouth. I do try to breathe a little slower these days and just... Consider what I'm saying a little more, not just sort of, you know... (laughs) Very sensible. And I too have maybe mellowed a little bit. I'm quite private. Perhaps in the 80s, I probably would have been out of control. But now, with a degree of common sense and experience, I realise that what I say makes a difference. And although I do like to be playful, I also realise that there's a consequence to what you say. These are very precious times. People are very sensitive and... Unfortunately, people like me grew up in the 70s where there was no
1: political correctness. I mean, people hit you, called you queer. Well, I want to talk to you about that because you mentioned that you are quite private Mm. and at the same time I've been reading one of your books because you've written a couple of memoirs. Oh, the
0: books weren't private.
1: (laughs) The book is so honest. It seems to be nothing held back. And I know you've had a spot of bother from that because one or two people didn't appreciate having their names put out there Mm. but what strikes me about the book is number one how honest you are about your various personal challenges but also how much recollection you have the level of granular detail about your various relationships who was wearing what in 1981 as you went to a club in the West End or, or somewhere in Woolwich or wherever is astonishing you got total recall. It's very funny what you choose to remember. When people ask me
0: about my childhood, my very young childhood, I remember very little about it. I remember once being pushed into a swimming pool by someone. I remember swinging on a gate listening to Rod Stewart sing Maggie May. But I don't really remember much about being a little kid at all because I think when I was a little kid, all I wanted to be was a grown-up. I was obsessed with being older and I was always being told to stick my nose out of adult conversations.
1: Well, you seem to grow up very quickly as well. I mean... Full disclosure, I'm about 20% of the way through the book. It doesn't sound like I've read much of it, but there's a lot in there. It seems to me that you're 15 years old, but you've just struck up quite a deep relationship with a mysterious Italian man in his late 30s, Mm. right? The man in the Burberry Mac. You met on a bus or something? On a train. Did you lose your virginity to him when you were 15? Louis, we need
0: some foreplay before we ask these kind of questions. (laughs) It was only a very brief love affair, about four days at the most. It didn't last long. You were 15, but you didn't feel
1: taken advantage of.
0: No, I didn't, because I was really clear about what I wanted. At the time, my parents would have done anything to get hold of the guy and have him arrested, because actually it was breaking the law. But, you know, I was involved in that choice. It wasn't something that was forced upon me. I don't look back and think (gasps) I was traumatised. I think for four days I thought I was in love.
1: The other thing that's striking, reading it is, I don't want to make this all about the book because that's a long time ago, but you seem to get beaten up quite a lot.
0: Yeah, a lot of chasings. There was always someone that wanted to further understand what you were doing. You know, like, why are you dressed like a nun? Why are you dressed like Carmen Miranda? This is a train station in Lewisham. This is not allowed, you know. And when you're that age, you just do those things and you think you've got the undeniable right to express yourself. To me, I just didn't understand what their problem was. It wasn't that I had any problem with what I was doing. I was like, even going back to sort of my sexuality, I never really came out because I was so effeminate as a kid. So when I started Culture Club, I was already having a relationship with John Moss. A drummer. I wasn't hiding what I was. You know, I was so uh, outrageously
1: gay. Certainly my experience with kids at school was there were some kids who just seemed so obviously gay, and then later on, someone would say, like... So and so's come out, and you're like, were they ever even, in?
0: No, but there are lots of people who are gay who don't fit into the sort of cliches of what people think a gay person is. To a certain extent, in the 70s, these people that I saw on TV, I regarded them as suffragettes. I thought Kenneth Williams, Dick Emery, all of Quentin those. Quentin tax- Crisp,
1: you mentioned. Quentin Crisp, times.
0: massive, massive. I met Quentin a few times. I mean. Amazing,
1: amazing man. For the younger audience, I always like to orientate our younger listeners because Quentin Crisp, the name might not mean anything, but wrote a very influential memoir called The Naked Civil Servant that was then adapted for a brilliant TV film played by John Hurt, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, if you could be bothered to scroll through my Instagram stories, pictures, there's a clip I put up of Quentin Crisp talking about reality TV before it was invented. He does this whole monologue about. If you want to do something, you know, and be notorious, you
1: do it on TV. And it's just so brilliant because it's like a prophecy. That's brilliant. Fast forward a few more years. When I joined Twitter, I noticed that you were following me. It doesn't happen that often, but every now and then I notice someone famous or someone I admire is a follower on Twitter. And I got a little thrill. And I think you have sent one or two friendly and admiring tweets. Now, just to get this out of the way, you also (laughs) sent one that was less... Admiring, and I just want to deal with it, and then we can move on. Last year, you sent a tweet that said, What's wrong with Louis Theroux?
0: Yeah, I thought you were off your nut. I was like, He's off his nut. Look, listen, one of the things I do as a recovering addict, I often watch people on TV and I go, They're off their nut. Most times, I'm completely wrong, but you just seemed like, didn't seem like you. What was I saying that caused you to think I
1: was off my nut? I don't know.
0: Maybe it was like you were at the wrong side of the camera. <laughs>
1: I do have a good side and a bad side.
0: Your style is quite low back, and you think, oh, yeah, I know what he's doing. He's, he's seducing me like a snake charmer. So you were quite different on that show. Maybe it's Graham's fault. Should we just frame Graham Norton? Was it Graham Norton?
1: Was that what you were watching? Yeah, I might have even taken the tweet down afterwards. I think I might I think have I You took it. it down. Because what came back, I saw it. And because it was in my timeline, you know, like a lot of people, I have the bad habit of seeing what people are saying about me. You know, First of all,
0: are you a Gemini?
1: No, I'm on the cusp, funnily enough. I'm Taurus with a tiny bit of Gemini. I'm May 20th.
0: You obviously clearly hold on to things. I have to say, you know, Geminis were always in... And I use this as an excuse, but it's the truth. I'm always in two minds about everything I do or say. So I'm always like... I'm kind of joking. So hopefully the other person will... I love it when people come back at me with something. And the interesting thing is you didn't say anything and no one famous ever replies to you.
1: I did, though.
0: Oh, you did? I never saw it.
1: Yeah. I said, how long have you got? You said, what's wrong (laughs) with Louis Through And I put, how long have you got? The only thing I was going to mention on it, though, because, by the way, nothing to apologise for. Everything's hunky-dory. I looked at the comments that followed it, and most of them were to do with Michael Jackson. So I thought, (laughs) oh, I wonder if George is is a Michael Jackson fan. I am a
0: Michael Jackson fan, but I don't have any problem with anyone saying what they want. I've supported
1: and amplified his accusers, the people who said that they were abused by him.
0: You've given them a platform, and that's what you do. Your job as a journalist is to try and lift up the carpet and see what's under there
1: and that's your job and also you know i It wasn't michael jackson related though in other words your tweet was nothing to do with mj Oh. No. by the way i didn't mean to say you're a fan and i'm not the music the no, d- a massive fan uh, yeah, the, massive as an fan. entertainer 100 percent.
0: i think you do have to separate what people create and what they are sometimes it's impossible but i'm not here to judge him or you appreciate it did you know michael jackson there was this one time When I was doing Taboo, the musical, and I was dressed as Lee Bowery. Legendary performance, Australian performance artist. I mean, there is a clip of this somewhere on YouTube. I'm kind of like embarrassed about it now, but basically I was dressed as Lee. I was in this tutu in a crash room with these big lips and these mad glasses. I looked like one of the Simpsons. And Michael Jackson, somebody told me he was outside the theatre in a limo. And so I went up and did an impromptu show for him and I was a little bit obnoxious. And I was screaming through the car. (laughs) You know that. And I know he saw me, but yeah, it was quite obnoxious. But I always wanted to meet him and, you know, sit down have a cup of tea with him and put him to write, you know, like, Michael, what are you doing wrong as this? You know, but the trouble is I was in my own chaos at the
1: time. So. From reading your book and thinking about that time, the level of creativity, you know, for a working class kid who dropped out of school growing up in Woolwich, you found your way into a cultural milieu, if I can use that word, that was extraordinarily creative and influential. You know, for people who were kind of looking to find their way in the world, you sort of followed a path that was completely unconventional, borderline delinquent, you know, nicking stuff from shops. You more or less seemed to have nicked stuff from half the Oxfam shops where nothing cost very much of anything anyway. It was just that we
0: had limited budgets and my parents weren't going to, give me money to go and buy a straw hat from the local Chinese shop and cover it with birds. I mean, my mum was a little bit of a... She would make stuff for me. I'd find some fabric in the market, bring it home and say to mum, can you copy this particular thing? So there was a little bit of encouragement from my mum because my dad was very jealous and my dad wouldn't let my mum dress up and if she dressed up, he would thought she was having an affair. So there was a little bit of my mum really kind of liking me being a bit outrageous and a bit glamorous, but... Also kind of worried that I was going to get my head bashed in. My dad, away, she used to go, if he wants to get beat up, let him carry on. And so I was left to my own devices, really. Actually, you find that in the working class world, there's amazing tolerance, you know. So we're talking earlier about people attacking you in the 70s. But remember, I've got a massive, massive Irish family. I was going to my Aunt Kitty's with green hair, dressed as a Womble, whatever it may be. And they were fine with it. they just go on with it. No problem. Well, I'm sure there were people that were like, made comments and, you know, Jesus, would I let my son go out there? It was like that, you know. And people said it to someone other. People would say, I saw this ting going into the train station with a green face and my mum was like, oh my God, I know that
1: was. (laughs) Really? Do you think, not to compare myself to you, I'm a humble journalist and you're an international (laughs) (laughs) star and legend of music and fashion and show business. But, you know, I took this all very conventional path. I just did well at school. I worked hard. I got my O-levels and then my A-levels and I went to university. All your gifts seem to have gone almost completely unrecognised by the normal channels. It doesn't seem like anyone at your school noticed that you might have been gifted artistically or musically. You had a bunch of dead-end jobs stacking shelves and doing messenger work and then found yourself being picked up more or less elevated by a band of bohemians and outlaws who were going to clubs and some of them taking drugs and, you know, experimenting with fashion. What went wrong with the system that no-one noticed that you might be talented in the normal way?
0: Well, I think this is an ongoing thing. I think whenever you have a strong identity, you know, I was really putting my head on the sort of style chopping block. When I started the band, people sort of came to see us but i was too much they were like yeah you know but he's too feminine he's too much and because you know these bands in the 70s that kind of dressed up because it was a thing to do those people have been a massive influence on me in terms of what i wanted to be as a performer it was important to me to have good music but also have visual stimulus for me the best artists are always those people that have style it it can just be the way they walk or what they don't wear you know like if you look at someone like Morrissey when he came along he was the sort of antidote to what we were doing which was really excessive Suddenly, Morrissey came along with a hearing aid and a bunch of gladiola and he changes the sort of status quo with one performance and that's what you're
1: aiming to do as an artist, is you want to... Well, in fact, and in fact, to trouble. me, from the sense I get from you is that maybe style and fashion came first and music second. Is that fair?
0: No, I think they were, to me, unseparable. You know, I always say an artist is the complete sum of what they think politically. You know, I mean, you wouldn't love Ziggy Stardust if,
1: if he was a Tory, would you? <laughs> or if he looked like... I'm trying to think of a good analogy. If you just look like a boring man on a bus, you wouldn't love him.
0: But equally, a boring man on a bus, on face value, might be boring. And then when you get to talk to that person, they might be the most interesting person you've ever met. So I think that there's a lot of this judging people, looking at them physically and making hideous judgments about their character. We're all guilty of that. And I do try, as I get older, to not do that.
1: To go back to that moment when I saw you doing Do You Really Want to Hurt Me on Top of yeah. the Pops... Was that your personal style or was that something you were doing that day? I had a friend at the time called
0: Claire. She always had these amazing hairdos and she'd adopted this kind of faux sort of Rastafarian sort of weird... Because of the slits, the band, the slits, Ari Up, it was my. Was Ari Up seventh. was the
1: lead singer, wasn't she? Yeah.
0: She was one of my, like, style icons when I was, like, 16. If you look at my first ever gig, I'm wearing a hat that's like a Rasta hat, which is exactly like it has got treads. And she so, was uh,
1: white, I think, but adopted a kind of Rastafarian style yeah. that might uh, nowadays be seen as cultural appropriation.
0: You could use that argument. I put something up online the other day where I'm. Just the other day we woke up on stayed loud. When you off and in my arms, the layer. You know, you could say, "Well, why are you doing it like that?" Because if you sing opera, you go. Bring him home. Will you really want to hurt me?
1: That sounds Look, good, well, George. <laughs> you you know, you got so into your opera that you're causing chaos on the set. Yeah. That sounded good, George. Oh, you, thank you. You've got <laughs> such a range. You can toast, you can do librettos. No, that's not the right word. I call it my Pavarotti Aria. voice. But you would say Ari up with your style icon and she had a sort of white dread thing going on. Yeah, she
0: loved reggae and she loved the whole look. So I think style always plays such a massive role In the music you like, you know, if you don't like the look, you can't be part of that gang. you got to own it. And at the time, there was this great fusion of reggae and punk, you know, because there was a whole rock against racism thing. A lot of reggae bands were supporting punk bands or vice versa. I really learned about reggae through punk rock. Yeah, You know, in the same way that I learned about Bob Dylan through listening to David Bowie, because he wrote a song
1: about Bob Dylan on Hunky Dory, and I was like, who's Bob Dylan? So your point was that up's style, her musical taste, to some extent, was part yeah. of what contributed to how you performed. Had I not met John, Roy and Mikey, Culture Club may have
0: been a slightly different type of band, but having said that, once we sort of became what we became... It was a sort of weird kind of composite of all these things I loved. And then I was kind of dragged away musically from some of the things I loved as well, which was a good thing. And eventually Culture Club became this sort of, don't even know what it was. You know, when we get lumped in with those sorts of 80s bands, like the more electronic bands, there is no comparison because what we were doing wasn't that.
1: Right, when you think about bands like Depeche Mode or Yazoo or Eurythmics, it's electronic. What you were doing was something more like, blue-eyed soul almost. Well, I
0: think the love of the reggae, going to clubs where there was a more of a cultural mix, you know, that was much more my scene in the 70s and hence adopting the sort of whole quasi-rabbi, Rasta. You know, we were playing around with the sort of symbolism of Judaism. We had this thing that said Tarabut Agadah. Which what does that
1: mean? I'm not familiar with that slogan.
0: Tarabut Agadah means cultural movement or something like that. It was because of John, I met John. John
1: Moss, the drummer.
0: John Moss, he said, your hat's like a rabbi's hat. And I was like, I love that. And then adopting
1: some of that imagery without being rude. Appropriating and reinterpreting little bits of cultural bric-a-brac. Hasidim, it's quite druid-looking.
0: You know, it's quite gothic. You know, it's got a sort of Bram Stoker feel to
1: it. And then the whole hat thing, the bigger hat... It's all about status, the bigger the hat. And some of them wear breeches and these quilted Edwardian frock coats, right? I think
0: if you're going to commit
1: to something, you have to commit, you know. And some have big fur, like Russian
0: fur hats. And the size of that hat, actually, is a question of prestige. The
1: bigger the better. That's what I keep trying to do, get bigger hats. 1982, when Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? went to number one, right? You would Mm. have been 21, I think. 22. 22. And you had global fame. Like, that was an international hit, wasn't it? It was number one in America? No, I think it was number two, but it was the same. How did you find that global success? Did you feel equipped to handle it? Did you enjoy it? There's so
0: much evidence, to the contrary. I mean, I can't sit here and say, oh, yes, darling, I took it to like a duck to water. It was, at first, thrilling and exhilarating and overwhelming, and then it became restrictive almost a kind of daily nightmare of never having any peace. And I think it just took me a long time to get to a place where I made a kind of deal with being in the public eye. I would say mid-90s, I had some amazing clarity. I went to India, I went on a bit of a spiritual journey,
1: and for a while I thought I was sane. (laughs) Did you feel like you were the kind of captain of your destiny? Like, was there a sort of manager or a Bengali figure who was pulling the strings, or were you? did you feel like you were at least a co-pilot in what was going on?
0: Oh, no, I was very much in charge of what I was doing visually. What we were doing musically, I think, was a compromise because, you know, I was a Susie and the Banshees fan. You know, I wanted to make kind of gothy music, really. It became something else, and I kind of went with it because I was like, I don't mind this, actually, because it's got a bit of soul in it. It's got a bit of reggae. But then, of course... You get famous, and fame becomes your new job. You didn't just get a little bit of publicity. It was relentless, and people wanted to know everything about what you did, every every detail, who you were sleeping with, what you ate, your opinions about everything, things you didn't even care about. And you felt obliged to fill in the blank spaces by talking. And hence having lots of things to look back at and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. I've been pretty lucky, but I've said some stupid
1: things. Mick Jagger and Bowie had both, I think, worn dresses on stage, right?
0: Again, that's a very journalistic way of looking at it because, yes, to a certain extent, what Mick Jagger did, what David Bowie did, gave me the kind of desire and the kind of bravery to do it. But I wanted to add some of me on it. I suppose I, I had Bowie, Karma Miranda, I had Mother Superior, I had all these iconic
1: things that kind of influenced me, and I just threw them all together. I was going to say because when they did it, you're still conscious that you're looking at a man in a dress, but you seem to blur the lines much, much more.
0: Once I discovered makeup, once I started to see what could be done to this face with a little bit of structural maneuvering with pencils and crayons. There was that great song on Transformer, Lou Reed's album called Makeup. You know, your face when sleeping is sublime and then comes Pancake Factor number 1. That was like sort of soundtrack to that moment. That's and right. I used to sit and then play that. Then comes Pancake, Pancake Factor number 1. Eyeliner rose, hip and lip gloss, it's fun. You're a beautiful... You're, a, you're slick a slick little, little
1: girl. girl. Oh, That's such me. a slick little girl. Lou Reed really did... Predict so much on that Transformer album, don't you think?
0: Even now, on the new album, there's a song called Bigger Than War. I am 100% channeling Lou Reed. You know, it's quite low. It's like, started up. You know, it's kind of imperfect. You know, there's too much perfection in everything, there's no breaks or cracks. Everything's so polished. And a lot of my favorite records are from people who have these kind of scratchy voices.
1: We're about halfway through this podcast. By the way, you're listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. And I wanted to hear what Boy George, as someone who's made a career out of teasing the world with his gender identity and who is also active on Twitter and Instagram, what he makes of the sometimes heated exchanges on the subject on social media. To a certain degree, it's
0: over-explaining. I mean, listen, I've run into trouble with people online because I've said, leave your pronouns at the door. And people take umbrage. You should leave your pronouns at the door when you come to... When, when you come in my yard, because if you think the first thing that's going to happen with me is that you're going to have to explain who you are and what you are based on how you look, then we're not going to start off on a good foot anyway. I will treat you with love and respect. Whatever you look like, whoever you think you are, whoever you say you are, that's your choice. I respect that. But please have a sense of humour about it, because I tell you what... If I wasn't able to laugh at myself through some of the things that I've been through and some of, you know, the times when people have punched my face in because I did a certain way or called me things or whatever. When I first went on Top of the Pops, the tirade of abuse afterwards was Wally of the Week, is it a bird, is it a plane, that's Boy George, a puff with muscles. And I was super unsophisticated when I was that age. In terms of my knowledge of the world and my knowledge of anything, I'd never been out of the country before I met John Moss. You know, I'd never eaten a prawn or a courgette. I didn't know what these things were. I grew up on stew. I'm not trying to make myself out as faking. But, you know, I came from a very big Irish family with a gambling dad and a mum that often had to make dinner out of
1: whatever was around. I remember the first time my parents... I mean, I always grew up in a very middle-class family, but things like kiwi fruit and hummus... Fruit? And that, that fruit? was all...
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're if you have fruit. I've got a Spanish friend who used to eat prawns and king prawns on the barbecue. I'm like, oh my God, you know, we just didn't have that. So these days I'm much more travelled, I'm much more open. But I'm not one of these people that sits there and points the finger and is overly moralistic. You know, sometimes I say to people, I'm really glad you're not running the guillotine because people got some very strange views, and they're very heartless sometimes, and it shocks me.
1: Your point, though, was that when you launched onto the scene in the early 80s, it was a very different world. You've gone weird. One, two, one, two. You've turned it into a robot. What about Unless now? It's, me.
0: it's not me. No, it's not me.
1: One, two, your internet connection... You've stalled. Bear with me.
0: Have you paid your bill? I'll chart for you.
1: MacBook Pro, your, what about now?
0: Yeah, it's a bit better. Yeah, your, back, your lips are moving. One, I can see
1: can you hear me? Moving.
0: Yes, can I? The kids are downstairs
1: on the PlayStation. They're using 0.1 megabytes of. I've got this app that tells me what's being used. I love that you believe that. Welcome to COVID land. I'm sharing my <laughs> bandwidth, trying to earn a crust in competition with children. Using a, a data-hungry... It could be a good jazz song, Bandwidth yeah. tr- Trust. It's really a blues <laughs> tune more than jazz. I got the bandwidth blues. Um, got a, I got the data-throttling blues. But the, so the point being... So, so I could put a construction on this that says, look, you're someone who grew up in a world where just to dress differently was to take your life in your hands, at the very least to get chased around by casuals yeah. and teddy boys and skinheads and occasionally be beaten up. And in a world where people are saying... I feel violated by you because the words you are using don't reflect the me that I feel myself to be. You see that maybe with less patience. Is that fair to say or am I overstating? I
0: think probably at this point with more patience. You know, I think initially, like everyone, I was like, oh, my God. And then I actually thought about it and I thought, does it really matter? I just think, explain it to people. You know, I get sniggered at all the time. Even now when I get into a lift with... You know, a bunch of businessmen, and I'm me. And it's like, everyone's trying not to look. And the worst is when you go into a male toilet and you're in full regalia. Like, I used to have to go into men's toilets to to dread the makeup. And I, for all the purposes, I look like a girl. I don't know why they just don't build more toilets. and just have more toilets for different types of people, you know, because I usually try and use the ladies' toilet, even now.
1: Do you? Oh yeah, much cleaner. You could get into trouble with the ladies though if they saw you in there, no? Yeah, sometimes. Has that happened? Not enough for it to be a
0: concern. <laughs> it does help when you're in full makeup though, because it's like kind of a woman. I'm a bearded lady.
1: <laughs> there's a certain, there's a little bit of a turf war going on between some elements of the more effeminate gay men. And then the trans women, some of whom are saying, oh, if you went all the way, if you were honest with yourself, you'd accept that you're really a woman.
0: I don't really agree with all this, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. There's too many rules. I think the trouble starts when people start thinking that every person who calls themselves a transgender or transsexual is also in agreement politically with the next transgender person. They never match. But I would say... Anyone other for any reason, whether it's because they of their sexuality or their religion, or their race or anything, anyone like that, I am one hundred percent on your side
1: always because I am one of you. I am you. I am an outsider. Hey, can I check that you're recording? Let's do a little sound check. Is everything looking good? Don't you don't have to stop it or anything. Just is the tail. Tale... Is... Wait a minute. Oh no, it's fine. Where I can start it again? It says resume. Have you resumed? Good. This is brilliant. It's such a pleasure talking to you, George. We were talking about the sensitivities that people have now in a completely understandable way to do with gender and sexuality. Once or twice, I don't know if you say you've got into hot water, but there's been little many flare-ups, could we put it like that? Nevertheless, you are a, an enthusiastic adopter of Twitter and also Instagram, is that right?
0: If you appear on my timeline with a comment, and if I disagree with what you're saying, I will hijack your tweet and say what I think. Mostly people don't really come back at me. They know what I'm capable of in terms of being a bit of a cat, you know. So people don't generally respond. I've got much better at not replying. I generally try to keep it in a sort of surrealist, humorous, you know, kind of a little bit jokey pocket so that it doesn't get, you know... If I feel like I've offended someone, I will say, and I'm happy to take tweets down if I change my mind the next day. If somebody explains something to me and says, this is how I feel about the use of that word or this word, there's no way that I'm going to fight for my right to upset someone. It just makes no sense. Do you think you're thin-skinned? No. Depends what it is. You know, if you break one of my Achilles heels, then obviously that might be a problem, but
1: I kind of... I don't think you are, by the way. I think I am a bit, and I mention it because when I'm on Twitter or social media generally, I tend not to send controversial tweets. I've got enough things to worry about, and I know that if I get horrible tweets in my timeline, I'm liable to get upset by them, and I'm not proud of it. I wish I could be more of a man about it. Sometimes
0: I say things that don't need to be said, and you'd be amazed at what I don't say and what I don't do. I'm very careful, but the other day I saw a picture of Lady Gaga with Joe Biden, and I couldn't help it. I just had to write, her sincerity is terminal. (laughs) And when I was questioned on it, I was like... How do you get from Julian Assange to Joe Biden in that space of time? So what was your point? Was she a big supporter of Assange at one time? Well, she went to visit him in the embassy and everything. And I remember at the time thinking, (laughs) this is a sequin deep love affair. I suppose I find it a little bit insincere.
1: Sequin deep. That's a good coinage. Is that yours?
0: One of mine, yeah. I always say that my relationships with other famous people are sequin deep. I was like, oh, that was a sequin deep love affair. You know,
1: because they're flat. (laughs) Yeah. Are you more on the Assange bus or the Biden bus?
0: Probably more on the Assange bus, I think. You know, I think that all he did was just tell people what they didn't know. And I don't think he even scratched the surface. Yeah, I think he's a troublemaker, no question. I don't think he's some easygoing poor little thing, a wallflower that's been
1: picked on. It seems to me that, certainly in his sexual conduct... There's a case that he has to answer that he hasn't answered. But notwithstanding that, that completely got in the way of the message and the fact that he was revealing actual war crimes... The media monstered him and made his personal life somehow invalidate what he was getting out there.
0: We're in this age now where the news is ferocious. It used to be three square meals a day. It used to be breakfast. Sometimes you get late-night bullion. But it was like, at certain times of the day, you had the news. It was read to you by someone in Corduroy. It was always very, like, kind of factual. There wasn't any frills. But now the news is a branch of showbiz. The ferociousness and hunger for information means that you're sitting there watching the same thing over and over. And, you know, you end up being transfixed. I think that's what happened with the Donald Trump thing. It was like hypnotism. Just keep saying the same thing over and over, and eventually it will become true. And actually, when I say to people about pop music, I say the only difference most of the time between a hit and an on is one thing, and that is repetition.
1: You know, Trump was written off as a serious candidate by the mainstream media They gave him a lot of airtime. He was a frequent guest because he got ratings, but he was a joke candidate. But what he did manage to do was come across as uncurated, you know, unmediated, authentic. Even his lies were seen as quite funny.
0: I have to tell you something, though, just quickly. I promised my manager that I would stay away from two things, Trump and religion. I haven't done too well on the Trump front, although I have to say, as a rule, I try not to talk about him because I think... You are just adding to the noise. So when I'm watching online, sometimes I'll see a debate or a thread and I'll just think, actually, everyone's just saying the same thing. That's, I think, what I crave, is some sort of counter-reactions. And I think that is the problem with this amazing thing, the internet, is that it's a lifesaver, but, you know, it also comes with consequences. Here
1: we are with that word again. I'm just wondering what your relationship is with social media... Because there'd be plenty of people at your level of success who would not feel any urge to do it. And you tweet quite a lot.
0: I don't feel an urge, but I feel like it's there. Surprisingly, in my case, I don't get trolled. But then I'm not really bothered about that. To a certain degree, I know what I think. Unless it's completely wrong and I haven't thought it through, I'm not really going to change my opinion about something. But you can... Educate me, I'm open, I'm not closed.
1: Do you just like the interaction or do you just like getting the information or do you like the companionship?
0: No, it's just something to do. It's like it's, you know, I'll go back to what I said earlier. Everything you do now matters. You know, what you do on social media, what you do live, what you're singing about. I think all of it. I mean, I think for me in the last couple of years, I've written so much music. I've got probably enough for about six or seven albums, literally. I'm not saying every single thing of it is good. I signed a deal just before Christmas with a company called Primary Wave whose job it is to go out there and place your music in movies and whatever, you know, and I own the copyright with them. So it's a new experience for me to own my music. I don't own any of the stuff I did in the 80s. The publishers can do what they want with it, and they do do what they want with it. You don't own that music? Not only do I not own it, they can change the lyrics, they can give it to a burger shop. They could do what they want. They have done that. They did a version of Karma Chameleon. It was about carrots and peas. and <laughs> Not that the song Shakespeare, but
1: it was just... But at least it wasn't hamburgers and pork chops. No,
0: and especially for me, because I'm vegetarian, so it wasn't great. Yeah,
1: that's what I mean. <laughs> so if someone does a cover version of Karma Chameleon, you
0: don't see any money from that? Well, no, of course we see money, but what I'm saying is I'd pay them not to do that. Haven't you made enough money from that song? I know it's paid for all of our houses. And it's, I'm not even really complaining, because... I'm not hard up, there's nothing to complain about.
1: Before we did this, I googled your net worth. Do you know what it says online? You don't have to confirm. I think it says £25 million. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) That's a lot. I wish. (laughs) Here's a random question. So you were on the A-team. I was, yeah. Provide a bit of context for that. Most bands got
0: asked to go on Miami Vice but I think we were too puffy for Miami Vice. Phil Collins
1: famously was on Miami Vice.
0: Duran Duran were on there, I think. A lot of bands were on there, but for some reason we
1: fitted more
0: in with the a I suppose. You I know. wonder
1: if younger people know about the a Yeah, it comes up all the time. We had Mr T playing B.A. Barackus, George Papard He was lovely, lovely man. ..who played Hannibal. I love that we're going to have to contextualise this. They were a group of ex-Vietnam Let soldiers. them Google it. Freelance Soldiers of Fortune. Who did you play on it and why were you on it?
0: I played very originally Cowboy George. I mean, listen, there was some sort of weird storyline about a band and there was a gig in a country bar or some rubbish. And I
1: had to say things like, I'll oh, be Really? So you weren't actually... From what I can recall, you looked exactly like Boy George, yeah, right? I, know, I
0: had to say things like, Awesome Hannibal, and I was like, now I would have committed to it with a bit more seriousness, but at the time... Yeah, it was a ham performance, not one of my greatest moments, but people seem to get a kick out of it.
1: Does that get set up by a manager? Like, how does that actually drift into your inbox? Oh, honey, you get, the manager will call
0: you and say, do you want to be on this show? Most of the time I'll say, no, I watch it, but I don't want to be on it. You know, like all the reality shows, I watch them all, but I don't want to be on one. just too much, it's too much. I think people know enough. They know less than they think they know, but they know enough that I think, you know, you've got to hold something back.
1: Sod's Law says that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Or in our case, the recording at George's end suddenly stopped. Fortunately, the production elves were also recording the video conferencing feed. So even though the sound quality is not as good, it was good enough to use until George spotted the error and started his recording again. Are you all right talking about your um, love life? Depends on the question. Early on, you said... And it was one of your most famous quotes, I'd rather have a cup of tea than have sex. These days it's coffee with a little cream. Was that just a wind up or did
0: you really mean it? No, I didn't mean it at all. It was just something to say. The truth of that story is, I went on TV with Russell Harty. Legendary, can we say Camp? Was he Camp? Camp in the closet. Not out. Talk show host. And he also kind of upset Bowie once. He was very rude to Bowie on this thing and it was just dismissive. I didn't like it. I remember thinking, oh, if he starts saying that with me, I'll give him what for. And I knew he was gay. and I also knew he wasn't out. So I bought this teapot because often in the seventies people would sing that I'm a little teapot, you know, thing to me like, you know. I'm... So I brought the teapot and I sort of bought you a gift,
1: you know. I was trying to be too surreal. I don't think he got what I was... That's very oblique. I'm going to put a marker down that sexual subjects are off the table. I know... I'll give him a teapot. That'll spell it out really clearly. I think to a fellow gay, it was like, I'm a little teapot as well. You know, it's Maybe like... Maybe in so the they... gay world, that's got more of a coded <clears throat> meaning than I'm aware of. I believed it did at the time, but clearly I was absolutely wrong. <laughs> so he asked you something about your... what your sexuality was, and you said, I'd rather have a cup of tea. Is that what happened? I said, sex, I'd rather have a cup of tea. And I was being a bit sort of Hilda
0: Baker-ish. I was just Who's being... Who's being... Baker? Hilda Hilda Baker. Walt, have you been? Is that Coronation Street? No, she was a sort of musical. She had this program called Nelly
1: Pledges Pickle Factory. She was just a character, I loved her. She reminded me of one of my aunts. There's only like nine years age difference and suddenly it was like I was talking to someone from the middle ages. I liked her. So can I ask if you're in a relationship now? I'm not. You're single. I think that accounts for the Twitter as well. I think when you're in a relationship, you've got someone else in the house and they think it's passive aggressive if you're on Twitter too much.
0: It may appear that I'm on there a lot more than I am, but I often will go out without my phone. Obviously not at this time because there's lots of things going on. But as as a rule, I'm not you know, tethered to my telephone. I think it is a tool. I think it can be used to avoid stuff. I think that people sometimes have an obnoxious obsession with it. And I do. I think my, some of my friends are say, if you're going to sit there and... Tweet about yourself all the way for this meal. I'm leaving. I'm happy to do that. And I'm happy for people to say it to me.
1: I think that's important. I say to friends sometimes, you know, be, well, actually, I say it to my wife. Let's get real. There's nothing worse than someone telling you, be
0: in the room when 10 minutes later, they're not in the room because they have something they think it's more important than you.
1: Yeah, you're not really here if you're just going to be looking at your phone. We live in this kind of voyeuristic
0: age of self-obsession. And, you know, we add our selfie. We went to photo booth. Yeah, we did it, but we didn't do it all day (laughs) with a pound coin. And we did like a few sessions and
1: kept the photos in our photo album. Your Twitter handle or your Twitter bio says Boomer. You're now called Boy George Boomer. Boom! Well, Boomer is what young people call old people. Right. Us older people don't normally identify as boomers. I'm reclaiming
0: Um, Boomer because one of the things about the music business is it's obsessed with next, And they actually treat older artists like me or whoever. You know, what's the favorite word they use? Oh, it's not relevant. I think a lot of artists, including myself, I am better than I've ever been at what I do. I don't have any insecurity. I used to have insecurity when I was selling millions of records, but now I'm like, no. You can either like or dislike what I do, but I'm not insecure about my ability What I do is something that I've crafted over years. I'm basically a Bernie and I write words and melodies over people's music.
1: Bernie wrote the lyrics, but not the melodic line.
0: I write the lyrics and the melody. You're Bernie
1: with a bit of Elton as well, I think.
0: But I also write for other people. It allows me to go into a sort of different part of my kind of musical history. You know, really obscure bands from the 70s. Things that stand the test of time. There's certain tracks where you go, this just sounds modern. Things like Nag 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 by Cabaret Voltaire. It just sounds like it would be made yesterday. Do you know that record? No. <gasps> is that early 80s? No, this is late 70s. Can I play? Yeah, go on. I Can you hear that?
1: I can't hear any of it.
0: Oh, because I've got the headphones and. <laughs> it's just basically a lot of screaming and
1: guitars, but it's. It makes me very happy. But what do you think? I mean, they say footballers have a short shelf life, right? You know, they're at 30 or 32, 34, and then suddenly they're over the hill. But pop stars might be over the hill at 24, right? It's quite a weird thing, isn't it? When you think, oh, wow, this person who has been idolized, and I don't mean specifically you, by millions, and is viewed as one of the most famous on the planet and selling newspapers, magazines, posters, merchandise, and then the third album doesn't do so well. And suddenly, actually, you're no longer, as you put it, relevant. What do you do then? You do what I've been doing for the last 30 years. Were you aware? Was there a moment where you thought, okay, maybe the bus has stopped now? No, no,
0: the bus has never stopped. Just a different bus. In the 70s, I DJed. Then I became a musician. In the late 80s, when Acid House started, I went back to DJing. Had a very, very successful 25-year career as an international DJ. Played everywhere. Got paid a fortune. It was amazing. And then I went back to music a couple of years ago and now I do all of it. You know, I do art. I had a very successful art show in November, my first art show in Monaco. I know what my role is and what I'm good at. I know my place. I get in that. Orchestra. And what I'm you wondering
1: to- is how you experienced that moment. For me, maybe because I'm more thin-skinned, I'd imagine that that moment where it becomes clear, oh, the label's not behind you in the same way. It doesn't happen
0: like that in the real world. Life doesn't happen like that. Life is, you know, one door opening, another one closing. Certainly for me, financially, I'm more successful now than I've ever been, even back in the height of it, because I was sharing all my money with three other people. I was splitting everything four ways. And also at that level, you've just got so many people working for you and you don't really know what any of them do now as I'm older I'm much more ambitious I follow my instincts more you know so at the moment because we've got this whole situation going on I just said to my manager I'm going to start releasing stuff with no logic I might put a video up and then put the song out after because actually the old way of doing things hasn't worked for me since 1987 but what's really good about it is if I disagree with someone about what I'm doing musically I'm the final word There's nobody that says to me, you have to change that. If I don't agree with them, I'm like, well, you know, I'm sorry, but it is what it is and I'm not changing it and I like it. I don't want to sit on things. I always think the next song's going to be the best thing I've written.
1: I suppose I'd imagine that there was a moment where one route to creativity closed and, and then you sought out another one, but it sounds like you were more proactive than that.
0: Listen, when you're not loved as much as you were, like any relationship... If your partner's gone off you, they can't hide it. When you're in a situation with a record label, it is a relationship. And when those phone calls stop coming and people don't answer you and they are a little bit like, people get embarrassed, you know, because people that you really love at the record label, they don't want to get involved and they sort of side away from you. And it's really sad, you know, because I'm not a big bridge burner. I think things happen when they happen. You don't have to fall out with people over these things. I'm about increasing my creative chain. Not making it smaller. So if something doesn't work out, I'm already looking, what am I going to do now? Because I have a compulsion to create things, whether it's a piece of art or some clothes, you know, I'm involved in everything I wear, (laughs) who else would be, you know? I'm very keen to kind of be in control of what I do creatively, you know, and I haven't always been. So are you single by choice? I'm just single by circumstance, but certainly I'm not gonna, you know, when I was younger, I fell in love at the top of a hat, you know. Now I'm older, I realise that what I thought was love
1: wasn't love, it was just hysteria. You seem to have had a knack for attracting straight men. If you believe that's even a thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that sexuality is what it is, you know. I had a great conversation with Eddie Izzard about this. I've been on a show where these drag queens, he was talking and he was saying he was straight, and these drag queens were going, liar, it was really rude. Anyway, so I talked to him about it. And he said, if you look at sexuality like a ruler, you've got extremely straight, extremely gay, and then everyone else comes somewhere along that line. But you can also sort of tip over here a bit, or maybe have a little half of this. Are you a shoe sniffer? There are people on the internet buying
1: used underwear. (laughs) You mentioned Lee Bowery, your friend Lee Bowery, Australian (laughs) performance artist, married a woman, didn't he? Married Nicola, who is a very, very dear
0: and close friend of mine still. First of all, he loved Nicola. He absolutely loved her, you know, and I think the love between all my best friends are women. All the people I love in the entire world are women, strong women. Those are the kind of women I loved when I was a kid, you know,
1: sort of Jane Collins, Shirley Bassey, my favourite. Have you ever been physically intimate with a woman? Oh, yes, I've done a few things, Louis. Forgive (laughs) me if this is overly intrusive. So you can be physically attracted to a woman? Well, I think that you have to be
0: pretty unimaginative not to look at a beautiful person per se and go, you know, I mean, what's the difference between all these straight men who basically have these fans only sites for gay men to watch them take showers and do whatever they're doing, play with themselves. It is such a phenomenon of the times, you know, and it's a really interesting time. I know I went off the subject. What was the question again?
1: The question was to do with... Can I find women attractive? Absolutely. Just you not attractive, self. but sexually arousing.
0: If somebody, regardless of their sexuality, causes you to look longer than you should... With a physical you... response. But how can it be anything but a physical response? With if parts you're talking... of you
1: getting bigger or moister. No,
0: but that's not an exclusively a sexual experience. You know, when I was at school, I remember my English teacher, Mrs King, she was quite sort of severe. She used to have pencil skirts and like silk blouses with the ruffle, you know, and she always had her hair done. She was like Mrs. Slocum. She used to come near me and her perfume. And I remember I used to kind of go all a quiver. you know, I'd shake like little Richard because she was sort of strong and confident. And I think there's something very sexy about confidence.
1: Did you ever think you might be a girl? When
0: I was about 17, there was a brief moment when I started wearing heels and stuff and taking it a bit more seriously. I did contemplate briefly. I wonder if I'd be any good as a girl. But then I realized that, no, I I like my man tackle too much. And I just thought, you know. You could be a girl with man tackle now. You can. I mean, that's the gift that keeps on giving, isn't
1: it? What I get from you, George, is that you've got an admirable level of self-possession and a sort of sense of self, but also life skills. I I want to call it toughness. Is that what it is? Like you're not afraid of speaking your mind and you're not over worried about what people think about you. That's quite good, I think.
0: I try not to be self-conscious. That's one of the things that really bothers me. I don't mind nerves, nerves are kind of great, but like when someone is like only worried about how they're gonna look on camera, like I always use Bowie as a good example because Bowie always looked back, he was where he should be. I mean, obviously I'm a Bowie obsessive. You know? Have you got him on your arm? Yeah. Is that a tattoo? Wow. There's Bowie, and then I've got Sue Catwoman there, Lee Bowery, I've got Susie Sue over Catwoman, here. Sue Catwoman,
1: legendary figure from the punk scene. Is yeah. Sue Catwoman still around and about? Yeah, yeah, and then I've got
0: Mark Boland. Mark Boland. On your arm. here, I'm going to get an re up tattoo as well.
1: As an outsider to the I suppose gay community and certainly like that world that you came up in the kind of club scene and the Blitz kids, what I see is if you've grown up in a world where you're going to suffer at best ostracization, social stigma and at worst possibly being beaten up, you have to acquire an armour. You have to acquire a sense of leathery toughness because otherwise you'll be made mincemeat. Listen, I was much tougher when I
0: was a kid. I had a mouth on me. I remember my mum used to go mad because I'd get like heckled by builders and I would go for it. But I think now I've got a great radar for drama. I will happily get out of a train carriage, cross a road, you know, that is not a problem for me because I think my radar is really strong. What,
1: to avoid drama?
0: It's like when someone's homophobia I mean, I don't care, it's their problem. It's not making me unhappy, it's making them unhappy. Obviously, it's a different view if somebody's going out of their way to hurt people. That's different to to be vicious online and stuff. And if I ever feel like I'm airing into that bullying thing, I'll, I'll stop myself. And I will happily say to someone, "Actually, that was a joke. I didn't mean to be offensive." There's nothing wrong with saying sorry. But people have to, you know, people have to, you know, be a bit cooler
1: about things. I'm aware that we've been speaking for a long time. I think it's brilliant. It's just been such a pleasure. I hope you're not feeling too exhausted. Not at all. Why do you keep me talking? The um. Well, have we covered most? We could talk for another hour, I'm sure. Is there anything... Oh, of the music that's around that other people are doing at the moment, well, you've collaborated with... I've got a lot
0: of little collaborations coming up. The new album I've just done is full of collaborations. George Clinton's on there, Sinead O'Connor.
1: George Clinton is on there.
0: Yeah, George Clinton's
1: on there. He must be quite old now. He's in his 70s and he's still the king of funk. Still got it. Yeah, my goodness. What did George Clinton do? Does he sing on the album?
0: He sings on it and he rearranged all the backing vocals so we had live vocals in the room. Did you do that virtually? No, no, he was in the room. He came to Shepherd's Bush and he was in the room and he was George doing Clinton his... did? Yeah, George Clinton. Why are you so surprised? I'm boy George. I was there too. <laughs> and
1: Sinead O'Connor, did you say, or was that... Su- no, Sinead O'Connor sings on
0: a track with me called Death of Samantha, which is the Yoko Ono song. Originally what happened was I was getting people in to kind of sing with me and then when Sinead started singing the song, she's kind of talking it. It's quite sort of smoky and quite broken and beautiful. I was like, oh, my God, she sounds so good. I'm just going to use her. And then I put this little thing at the end where I come in and I go like, Yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, I'm cool. You know, it's a little bit and then she comes back. Your
1: voice sounds amazing, George. Can I just say that?
0: Thank you. Thank you. I've turned into a jazz singer. That's really
1: where I am. You sound almost like Billie Holiday or someone. Hey we're getting fun. I'm getting pinged saying we've been going a long time. Right. But I want to ask you one left field question. <laughs> okay, okay. Every Christmas you come around as one of the featured vocalists on do they know it's Christmas obviously, right? Like it's so iconic. But I just recently realized Culture Club didn't play Live Aid. No. Why was that?
0: Well, I messed it up. I was otherwise engaged chemically. I mean, listen, I think it was a stroke of luck that we didn't do it because I wasn't in a fit state to do it and it would have been You know, the opposite of Queen, it would have been, did you see that terrible
1: performance? You had an invitation to play, it wasn't that you weren't asked.
0: Yeah, we originally asked and then I think everybody was just looking at the state of me and just going, this might be more harmful than good and so they basically didn't follow up on it and I didn't pursue
1: it. Got it. I didn't realise that. (laughs) Yeah. You weren't in a good place. No. No, I was super unprofessional. Insofar as you had chemical issues, if you want to put it like that, do you blame any of that on the fame or do you think that whatever would have happened, that might have been part of what was going on?
0: I think that when I was 17 and I was living in Warsaw, in Birmingham, I was living with Martin Degville from Zig Zig Sputnik.
1: Zig Zig Sputnik is going to not mean much to a lot of people. I hate to say, George.
0: You know what? It will take you two seconds to Google it. Don't
1: Go Google it, younger people.
0: It will make your life so much better. Love, Love missile.
1: Love missile, F-111. Shoot
0: it up, now shoot it up. <laughs> Anyway, so Martin, I lived with Martin and people were necking speed. They were like diet pills that your mum took and they were on the scene. And I remember taking quite a few of those and then having a very nasty experience on them ended up kind of hallucinating and and ended up in a hospital. So for years and years, I was very anti-drugs and would go mad if anyone in the band was caught smoking a spliff and was pretty unreasonable about it. And then, you know, it kind of, I think that what fame does is it puts you, as Bowie says, puts you there where things are hollow. You know, those sorts of people that peddle drugs, they want to be around what you represent to them, you know, the whole rock and roll thing. It's toxic and it's alluring and it doesn't take much, you know. And what I know about myself now is that I'm not someone who could do one of anything, whether it's a biscuit, or an ecstasy devil, whatever it is, I can't do one.
1: Chocolate. Chocolate. That's the monkey on my back, chocolate.
0: In the last few months, I've lost a ton of weight, obviously, since Christmas. I'm probably about 12 and a half, 13 stone right now, and I was 17 stone. Wow. I decided at Christmas, you know, that I was going to cut
1: out carbs and sugar. And you follow that quite strictly?
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm a really, I'm a really good, I'm a, I make great vegetarian food. Are you raw vegan? No. I'm not vegan. Vegetarian. Vegetarian. I eat cheese. I eat cheese. I love cheese. Sorry. Do you do it for the animals or for the sense of well-being? I think both. And I'm not a gung-ho nightmare, you know, walk out of a restaurant and somebody has a hamburger. You know, it's a moral choice. You can't tell people what to do. You cannot. You can just do what you do. And it's the same with this whole, you know, social distancing thing. It's like, I've seen people very oblivious, not taking care people that should be taking care, and you just think, well, I can either fixate on what they're doing or I could just do what I'm doing. You know, this whole thing, it's a unique experience. Some people do have a very gung-ho attitude to it, and, you know, maybe that's what keeps
1: them safe. I'm getting frantic messages from the producers <laughs> saying... We've got I wouldn't have
0: if I didn't like you.
1: Oh, I really... That, that's nice to hear that. Thanks, George. My thoughts are with you and with your mum. I really hope she's doing better.
0: Me too. I spoke to her yesterday. That was amazing. She's a little bit more calm than I was. You know? All right, well, listen, thank you for that. And I apologise profusely about the tweet.
1: I would not at all. Nothing to apologise for. <laughs> but knowing when not to tweet is also a skill. My bad habit is tweeting drunk. The kids are in bed. You think, oh, I'll have a look at Twitter. And then you think, oh, maybe I'll tweet something funny. And yeah. it can go so wrong. Because you're effectively on your balcony standing in front of two million people, drunk, or at least the worst for wear, and that's not a good...
0: I'm going to turn this off. Turn it off, and we'll, bring, we'll invite Catherine and Paul back. Oh, we didn't even go to half of the places I thought we were going to go to. We'll have to do a round two. We'll yeah. do a round two, I'd love that. Let's call it And Another Thing. And Another yeah. th-
1: <laughs> You've been listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. My guest today was Boy George. This is a Mindhouse production for BBC Radio 4... And today's production elves were Paul Kobrak and Catherine Manan. And to hear future episodes as soon as they're available, just search for Grounded with Louis Theroux on BBC Sounds and subscribe. Hi, I'm Catherine Bohorst. And I'm Sarah Keyworth. We're comedians separately and a couple together, and we're the host of You'll Do, the podcast that gives you a little insight into perfectly imperfect love.
0: Yeah, forget nights in with this one and hashtag couples goals. We want to know the whys and hows of sticking with the people we love and asking a few of the questions that are meant to help us develop intimacy. So why not give it a listen and subscribe to You'll Do on BBC Sounds.